I just came from helping uh, finish a Dharma transmission at San Francisco Zen Center. So uh, Kosho Zenrin, Jack McCall, just received Dharma transmission from Gills and my elder Dharma sister, Zen K. Blanche Hartman, the, uh, who used to be the abbess of San Francisco Zen Center. And for those who don't know what Dharma transmission is, it's uh, the generation after generation succession from Buddha to the present day of the teachings of the Dharma. And so the people who receive this Dharma are supposed to be visible and uh, take, uh, receive the, the uh, precepts, the, the teachings, and understand how to say them in a similar way to the Buddhas and ancestors from the time of the Buddha to now. And um, at the end of the Dharma transmission ceremony is a small ceremony called Muju Hai. Muju Hai means uh, Amatadatu, uh, the recognition of Amatadatu. And it's also called unlimited gratitude. And in this ceremony, the person who's just received the Dharma, and it was a 21-day ceremony, um, does an unlimited number of full prostrations in gratitude for Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And um, it means don't dwell anywhere. Uh, Dwell in gratitude. That's what I want to talk about today. Because as I was sitting down, and um, please excuse me for being late, so I was sitting down quite late after having um, seen and heard and felt the silence of your hearts, the silence of your bodies, the silence of your intention. Um, I was late because I um, got lost on the way here. And, um, you know, I got off the freeway and having forgotten to copy down some essential line of the directions here, (laughs) found myself on Seaport headed towards the next exit on 101. I thought, this will never do. (laughs) Turned around, came up past Woodside, finally found El Camino Real. And when I went headed south on El Camino Real, it was the wrong way. And so um, I found myself in another town again. Uh, There was a car um, whose driver was just starting it to warm it up to go someplace. And I rolled down my window and said, excuse me, where's Hopkins? And the driver said, it's not this way. And so I turned around and headed out towards um, this way. Got up to Brewster and thought, I've gone too far. (laughs) And so I turned around and headed back towards the uh, shopping center and got there for the second time. And uh, there was somebody walking near there, dressed up very nicely, I think maybe to go to church. And I said, excuse me, where's Hopkins? 
And the person said, it's that way. It's the one right after Brewster. (laughs) So I think about this because practice, while practice doesn't abide anywhere, there is time and there is a place. And so when I sat down, I reflected on the path and how the shortest distance to non-abiding and to silence may be a path of many turns. So what is the point of practice? Where are we trying to go when we sit down and follow the breath, when we watch the arising and falling away of thoughts? What are we really doing? In what direction are we headed? As you know, the Buddha did not discuss God. When people asked the Buddha about God, the Buddha maintained a noble silence. And yet, I don't think that the Buddha was a stranger to the yearning for transcendent reality that is in all of our hearts in the midst of the silence of our own bodies and minds. I think the Buddha was a radical teacher, an incredibly skillful teacher, who by refraining from talking about the infinite, refraining from describing it, simply saying it's not this, or being silent, was able to teach us the shortest and most direct route to appreciating the transcendent reality of our lives just as they are, of our existence just as it is. And sometimes we get lost in noticing the thoughts that come and go and thinking that perhaps the shape of the thoughts, the map that's shown by the shape of our thoughts, is um, the same as the direction in which we're headed. And this is a great mystery because, in fact, it is. It is and it isn't. And one of the central paradoxes of wearing Buddha's robe and trying to speak Buddha's teaching is that as soon as one says it is, as soon as one says it is not, um, one is expressing confusion instead of the path. One time someone asked Katagiri Roshi, what is the path? Katagiri Roshi was a young monk when he came to the U.S. to help Suzuki Roshi, the founder of my lineage in America. And this question happened after Katagiri Roshi had been teaching, had been practicing, I'm sorry, for 50 years. What is, what is the way? What is Buddhism? Katagiri Roshi said, be kind. And um, Katagiri Roshi, in that simple two-word instruction was acknowledging that the one who is kind and the one who receives the kindness, whether it's the same as, whether it's the self or others or the world, um, transcends the boundaries and suffering of everyday life while acknowledging the boundaries of everyday life. Katagiri Roshi at that time knew that he didn't have long to live. 
And yet he simply chose to say, be kind. That was his expression. So the meaning of practice, the meaning of not dwelling anywhere, is being kind, being grateful, living as if we and others and the world were one, while acknowledging in the simple act of kindness, in the simple act of giving, that we're not just one, and that the beauty of life lives in this mystery. It's a living mystery. It just was the new moon. And I was speaking with a friend from Iran about this season and about this time. This is the beginning of the year in Iran. And everybody has a big celebration and goes and visits the wise people first, the people, the elders, um, one's relatives and friends, and renews life at this time. It's kind of like um, Easter, um, New Year's, and Halloween all rolled up into one. And um, I think that um, we can see this, we can feel this a little bit today when we look at the cherry blossoms, you know, when we feel the, uh, the temperature of the air in this room that's just right, when we feel the solidity of the ground, the circulation of life energy and blood in the body, the um, motivating spirit within us. We can feel this sense of renewal and the sense of freshness. And that's the point. It's not complicated. Doesn't mean it doesn't mean it's easy. I used to um, sometimes go and have breakfast with Mrs. Mitsu Suzuki, Suzuki Roshi's wife. Suzuki Roshi gets all the press. Uh, but he actually died in 1971 after only 12 years in this country. The 12 years had a big impact. But his wife, Mitsu Suzuki, um, decided to stay in the U.S. after Suzuki Roshi died. And um, she lived at San Francisco Zen Center until October 1993. So for an extra 20 two years. She lived in this country. And um, then she went back to Japan because she wanted to speak Japanese to her doctors instead of English. She wanted to be able to spend some time with her daughter and grandchild. And um, so she went back. But while she was here, she was one of my major teachers. And um, she she was not she had not received Dharma transmission. She was not ordained. She was a layperson. And the point of her practice was, can Dharma be expressed here? Can I express the way in my own life? So um, Suzuki Sensei used to invite me to breakfast. And we would have a great uh, breakfast. Sorry, you're hearing this story for the second time in two days. But I can't help speaking about Suzuki Sensei, <laughs> so please be patient. Um, so she would um, she would make miso soup, 
as part of breakfast. Sometimes we would have eggs and toast and miso soup. And sometimes we would have um, croissant and miso soup or toast with raspberry jam and grapefruit and miso soup (laughs) and green tea, you know. So it would very much be a... The breakfast was really a product of her whole life. And her soup was great. I mean, miso soup is you've never had miso soup. Because um, Suzuki-sensei was a tea teacher, and she knew that to make perfect tea or to make perfect miso soup, you can't use boiling water. You have to use water that meets the tea or that meets the miso at just just the right temperature to, to release the flavor and not so hot that it burns it and changes the flavor or boils it and makes it um, change. And she had developed that refined sense of meeting people and meeting ingredients of life with kindness and acknowledgement. So um, every morning, Suzuki Sensei used to get up and um, this was after her hips were too um, old to really be in this cross-legged position. And she would take a little bit of what we were going to have for breakfast and offer it to Suzuki Roshi at his altar. And she'd ring the bell three times. Ding, ding, ding. And that's how I knew that she was awake. And then sometimes she would wash her hair. She had very, very long at that time, completely black, maybe one white thread in her long black hair, maybe this long. And she would go out into the courtyard and um, comb her hair and dry her hair in the warmth of the early morning sun. And while it was drying, she would walk around and see what new flowers had come and say hello to the birds one by one. Um, she was not a hippie uh, space cadet. <laughs> she, um, even now at um, 90, she um, is a much requested public speaker in Shizuoka, her, uh, where she's living now. And she's sharp as a tack. And this is what she thought it was important to do when waking up. And so when she made her miso soup, it was with all that sense of greeting between the miso and the water. And the, um, she would c- cut a, a piece of green onion to finish the soup and put it in at just the right time so it became bright green and its flavor came forth. So I asked her, Suzuki-sensei, your soup tastes so good. I use the same ingredients. Why doesn't mine taste like yours? It looks easy when you do it. And she just looked at me and she drew herself up to her full five feet, maybe. (laughs) Big presence. And said, Vicky-san, simple is not easy. (laughs) 
<laughs> so um, when you think about the Buddha and the path of the Buddha, it's enormously simple. How can my obstacles, how can my suffering stop being a wall and start being an impediment that actually I negotiate and in the negotiation uh, it's helpful both for myself and for all beings. That's very simple, isn't it? Nothing Nothing complicated about that. It's just whatever comes up, appreciate it and let it be helpful. That's it. The Buddha taught um, existence is one extreme. Non-existence is one extreme. And um, that we're not to go into the two extremes. This was one of his first teachings. Instead, he taught the twelvefold chain of causation. When this comes to be, that comes to be. When this does not come to be, that does not come to be. When we do not attach to our desires and we do not avert from our hatreds, we we are following the middle way, the middle path. We're following the path. When, while saying, not this, one acknowledges this, one follows the middle way. And there's a keyhole. It's like a keyhole in the midst of our suffering through which the light can shine. That which breaks us allows the life to shine. So on reflecting about the path, on reflecting about Dharma transmission and the meaning of unlimited boughs of gratitude, on reflecting about the spring, that's all I want to say. And thank you very much for your attention. If you'd like to speak about something, or if there's something that's bothering you, please speak up. Thank you for coming. And we're getting off. <laughs> I remember what you said, and uh, the next time I get off, I'll use your example. I'm not getting angry. I'm upset for worry. There's actually a phrase in um, the Zen tradition. It's kano doko. Um, when Dogen Zenji was a young man, he went to China to try to learn Buddhism. And um, actually, Dogen Zenji, it was a hard trip. He went with his teacher. And they got in a boat, and it was a stormy season of the year. It was actually a quite a dangerous journey. And when they finally made it to China, the customs official stopped them in port and they were stuck on their boat for two months. And during this time, one of the um, biggest teaching incidents of Dogen's life happened. He was on the boat and uh, they had been, one of the things that the boat was bringing was import mushrooms from Japan to China. There was a, uh, a side, apparently a side business of um, transporting mushrooms that didn't grow in China. And so the uh, Tenzo, of, uh, the, the chief cook of one of the monasteries, came onto the boat and um, 
to look at the mushrooms. And uh, Dogen Zenji, um, who was just, he wasn't Dogen Zenji at that time, said, um, looked at the man who was quite old for that day, he was in his 60s, and said, how did you get here? And the man said, I walked. He said, well, where's your temple? Where are you from? And he was from a temple that was 14 miles away. And um, Dogen Zenji said, why did you walk? Um, couldn't you have sent someone else? And the, uh, the head cook laughed and said, my dear young man, you, it's very clear that you do not understand the way. I've been given this job in my old age. Would I give it to someone else? So Duggan had an uh, aha experience. Later, um, he spent um, a couple of, of years in China running around looking for his true teacher. And finally, he got to um, Rujing's monastery and um, went to visit him. Part of the Zen tradition is personal interviews with the teacher. And so he went to see him for a personal interview and asked him about the, the way. And the teacher noticed him immediately and said, you have the bearing of the Buddhas and ancestors. Um, you must come and speak to me any time whether you're dressed up or not, and no matter what time of day or night it is. And then he said a phrase, Kan, Kano doko. Kano is the intimate response between Buddha nature and sentient beings. Uh, not that they're different, because all beings are Buddha nature, and if we looked at ourselves deeply enough, we'll notice that. But Kano is that we think we're separate, and so we yearn for awakeness. We yearn with all our hearts, with our inmost heart, for awakeness. And um, awakeness answers, and that's called kano. And then doko, the second half of what he said, is interesting, because do is the word, you know, do as in the path, that do. And ko just means intersection like the corner of El Camino Real and Hopkins, or Woodside. It's an intersection. It's part of the character. And uh, so it means intimate communion, paths meet. You know? So we're on the corner of Hopkins and Birch whenever, we're, um, whenever we wake up. It's, um, it's amazing. So um, thank you. And because you remember, I can remember. Be bold in changing your legs. <laughs> They've been sitting for a long time. You know? It's the um, equipment. <laughs> this is a, how does one find the sense of kano doko in legs you know, during sitting. So here's an exercise you can only do when your legs are tired. Just for a moment, sit on your two sitting bones, okay? If you don't know where your sitting bones are after a couple of hours of sitting, (laughs) you'll be able to find them if you sit on the edge of your cushion or on the edge of your chair. If you're sitting in a chair, put your feet under your knees. And if your knees are higher than your hips, you'll know that 
um, you're not sitting in as easy a position as you could be sitting to give your legs the room that they need. So you might try this next time. If your knees, if when you sit and you put your feet down, your knees are higher than your hips, you might try sitting on something else on top of the chair, like a folded blanket. And if when you sit in your sitting position, your knees are higher than your hips, then get a little more support when you sit. Now from there, just reach back and touch your cushion or your chair. Pressing the cushion or the chair down, lift your body straight up without lifting your shoulders. Now you're light, right? So keep your, keeping yourself that light, lift the chest to sit up tall. Okay, how about your legs? They're lighter, right? So um, attitude is not just a mental thing. Uh, this is part of the mystery of our own bodies and minds that we can make such a change with such a simple action. Okay, so thank you very much. <laughs>